0: We're going to be in Psalm 3 this morning. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 448 this morning. Psalm 3 begins like this. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Our goal this morning is to spend some time in Psalm 3. But before we can dive into this psalm, we have to deal with the very first part, the heading that you read in your Bible as you're looking at it. In fact, I put it on the screen today so that we can see it there too. The beginning of this psalm starts with this, a psalm of David... When he fled from Absalom, his son. In order for us to understand this psalm and to have the entire context of what happens in Psalm 3, we first have to understand the historical context of how this psalm got written, what was happening with David as he wrote Psalm 3. And so for us to get that understanding and to get that historical perspective and to understand the motivation and meaning behind this psalm, we have to begin with a story. And this story begins in a different book. If you want to turn there, you can follow. I'm going to give broad strokes to the story. But it starts in 2 Samuel chapter 11, a little bit back in the Old Testament, a few pages. This story starts with a king who is standing on a rooftop and looking off into the city and sees a beautiful woman bathing. He sees that woman, he's attracted to that woman, and he in fact brings Bathsheba, that woman, into his palace, and ends up having an affair with her. That king is King David, and King David and Bathsheba have an affair, um, which ends up uh, with, with. if you know the story of that affair, ends up having her husband um, is killed. David arranges a a, a murder on the battlefield of her husband. Um, They end up being pregnant with a child, and through that whole process, through that whole process, um, finally, a prophet of God, Nathan, comes to confront David, and the Nathan, the prophet of God, comes and shares a story, a, a parable with King David. It tells a story about a man who had who was very poor and had a, a lamb, and another man took that lamb from him and Through that parable, David, as you can imagine, um, begins to to understand the injustice of what 's happening. To that man and and begins to, to, to want to right that wrong. And in the midst of that context, Nathan then says to David, You are that man. You are the one that has done this, and confronts him about his sin with Bathsheba. Nathan then, as David finally confesses and in fact repents for this. David gives him a punishment, or Nathan gives David a punishment that comes from God. God's response to David there as you read it in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 11 and 12, David. God's response to David is, I will rise up evil against you out of your own home. That is going to be the punishment, that's going to be one of the punishments that God has, one of the consequences that God has for David through this this sin that he has had with Bathsheba. And so as you continue on in Second Samuel there, you see that one of the next things that happens is David has a son named Amnon. Amnon is David's son and, and he has a sister named Tamar who he develops an attraction for. And as you read through the story, Amnon uh, concocts a plan, a, a, a story, a, a way to convince Tamar to come and be with him in his room. And, and when he gets her in his room, Amnon in fact rapes his sister Tamar. At that point, I can only imagine that David probably now understands the prophecy that came from Nathan, understands that God has said that evil will rise up against him in his own home, and sees that that, in fact, right now is happening. His his daughter has been raped by his son. But it's just the beginning of our story. David's oldest son, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, um, decides that he needs to avenge the rape of Tamar. He, he invites her in and lets her live in his home, Absalom does. And then Absalom gathers all of David's sons together. All of the king's sons get together for a meal that Absalom puts on. He, he convinces David to let all the sons come so that they're all in one place together. And Absalom has a plan. Absalom has a plan that during that meal, after Amnon drinks a little bit too much and gets a little bit too casual and relaxed, at that point, Absalom is going to give a sign to his men, and his men will then murder Amnon right there at the table at the banquet in front of all the other brothers. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. Amnon uh, drinks a little bit too much, gets relaxed, Absalom gives the word, and his men kill Amnon right there, avenge the rape of Tamar right there at the table. The sons of David gather together and they jump on their donkeys and they flee back to Jerusalem, back to the capital city. But Absalom, Absalom turns and flees away. He knows what will happen. He knows that David will be angry. And so he flees away from David. And for three years, for three years, Absalom and David are estranged. They don't have any relationship. They're, they're apart from one another. And finally, after three years, a man by the name of Joab, who is, is the military advisor for King David, um, he realizes that he needs to help mediate this relationship between Absalom and David. And so he he develops a plan and you can read through it in 2nd Samuel there if you're if you're paging through those those stories. He develops a plan for a woman of Tekoa to go in and and share a parable again a story with David so that his eyes might be opened to the injustice of what's happened. And in fact that that does happen. That's exactly the way it goes and David realizes he needs to have reconciliation with his son Absalom. But the reconciliation is not a complete reconciliation. David says to Joab, he says, he says, Absalom can move back to Jerusalem. He's welcome to come back into the capital city and to be a part of, of my palace area, but he can't live in my home, and I never want to see his face again. So David makes, makes moves towards reconciliation. His heart is turned toward Absalom a bit, and yet it's not a full reconciliation. Absalom does come back to Jerusalem and lives in, in, in the palace city there for a number of years. But during that time, he wants full reconciliation with David. He wants to have that relationship made right again. And so he pleads with Joab to come and to mediate a full reconciliation, to come and to, to help him gain audience with David and to make that relationship with David right. But Joab will not respond. Joab does not come back. He does not come back to, to Jerusalem. He doesn't, he doesn't um, respond to Absalom. And Absalom needs a way then to get Joab's attention. And so Absalom starts a fire in Joab's field so that Joab will finally come and finally return. And Absalom says, You would not you would not return my calls, and so I had to do this so that I could get your attention. And so Joab comes. And meets with Absalom and in fact brings Absalom and David together after two years of living in the, in the palace city and the capital city. Um, Joab mediates a response between David and Absalom and, and David kisses Absalom and everything is made well. Reconciliation has been brought together and David and Absalom are now back together, are reconciled and their relationship is back. But. Absalom, Absalom has been a little bit conniving in this process. In fact, during these years when he's been in the capital city, uh, he has not. He is, he's been trying to reconcile with his father, but at the same time has some animosity towards his father. And so he sits at the city walls. The Bible tells us as you read through Second Samuel. He sits at the city walls and people will come into the city and they have they have grievances, they have things that have not gone well with where they're at and they want to come to the king. And they want they want a response from the king, they want a judgment from the king. They want all of these all of these things that have happened against them to be made right. And David doesn't have time to hear all those things and doesn't bring all those people into into his court to to settle all of those issues. And Absalom sits on the city walls and he says, you know, it sure would be nice if David would, would just listen. If, if, if we could get you to, to take your case into David, if, if, he would, if he would listen, that would be so helpful for you. And people begin to hear that, and, and they light up to that. They respond to that. And then, Absalom even takes it a step farther. He begins to say to people as they come, and they're not able to get an audience with the king, he begins to say, you know, if I was the king... I would do things totally different. I would listen to your complaints. I would listen to your case. I would make all the wrongs that have been done to you, I would make them all right. If I were only king, everything would be greater. Everything would be better. Your life would be better if I were king. And for four years, Absalom sits at the city gates and and makes up these stories and, and, and begins to persuade people that he might be a better choice. He might be the one that they should follow. He might be the better king. While he's doing that and while he's he's turning people's hearts towards him, as you can only imagine, people would respond to that. They've They've been put out. They've been wronged against. And now Absalom is the one that is promising to make all the things better. And David is not able to do that or does not choose to do that in some cases. And so people's hearts are turned towards Absalom. In fact, people begin to want to follow Absalom. And Absalom then brings his whole plan to fruition. He decides he's going to announce his kingship, and so he heads out of Jerusalem to a place called Hebron, just outside of Jerusalem a ways. And Absalom is going, when he gets to Hebron, a trumpet is going to sound, and he's going to announce that he is naming himself the king of Israel, that he's going to take over the throne of David. And he doesn't just decide that he's going to announce it to the people that live in Hebron, but... Absalom is a, is a master planner, and, and he convinces his men to travel all around the, the country of Israel so that they might be able to proclaim to every single tribe in all of the cities at the exact same time that Absalom is claiming the throne. And so Absalom leaves Jerusalem and heads out of town and heads to Hebron. And when he's there, he makes his announcement. And his announcement rings out from Hebron and all of his messengers declare it across the whole countryside. And so everyone knows that Absalom, David's son, is making a claim for the throne. That he's declaring himself kingship. That he is declaring his kingship. Lots of the people, their hearts have been turned towards Absalom. Lots of the military has turned and gone with Absalom. In fact, one of David's most trusted advisors, turns and goes with Absalom. In fact, if you read through, David says in one place about his most trusted advisor, he says he prays that God would turn all of his advice that he gives to Absalom to foolishness because he does not want Absalom's reign to continue. So Absalom moves to Hebron and begins to plan an attack to come back into Jerusalem to take the palace to take the the rightful throne that David is on and to really to to take over the kingship and to throw David out that's where we come in Psalm 3 if you're looking in in 2nd Samuel you'll see that David has to flee from Jerusalem he does it for a couple of reasons one is that his army is is much less powerful at this point much much weaker than Absalom's army. And he knows that if Absalom were to get into Jerusalem and get into the palace, that his army would quickly be defeated and he himself would be killed, his family would be killed. And so he escapes out of Jerusalem, really running for his life. And he also, I think, escapes out of Jerusalem and leaves Jerusalem because he knows that as this battle is being planned and this battle is being, as Absalom is preparing for this battle with David and his his armies, he knows that the city of Jerusalem itself would would not withhold or would not withstand the battle. And so he wants to protect the people in the city. So if he knows if he leaves, the the early morning battle from Absalom and his men will not happen within the city itself and the people would be spared. And so David, David decides to leave. And if you're in 2 Samuel, in chapter 15, starting in verse 30, the very end of chapter 15, we read this. Samuel tells us, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot, with his head covered. And all of the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. David is leaving Jerusalem, heading up the mount. His head is covered. His feet are barefoot. And he's walking out of the city, leaving his palace, leaving his rightful throne. He is the king of Israel. Even though Absalom has announced that he is, David is the rightful king, the one anointed by Saul, the one put in place by God. And he is leaving the city. As he leaves, he has a number of, of meetings with different people. And, and if you want to read through those, those are some interesting things about what, how David plans to, to put spies within Absalom's army so that they could report back to him. But one of those meetings is with a man by the name of Ziba. Ziba, if you remember from earlier history, Ziba is the servant to Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth comes from the previous king, Saul, the king before David, the very first king of Israel. Mephibosheth was in his family line, and when David takes over kingship, he searches out anyone that would still be in Saul's family line and finds Mephibosheth, a crippled man, and invites him to come. And doesn't, doesn't Mephibosheth is afraid that 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 he'll be killed by the new reigning king. But David does not kill him, but in fact brings him in to the palace so that he might dine at the king's table and live in the palace. He protects him, he rescues him, he watches over him and cares for him. And Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, comes to David as David is leaving as leaving Jerusalem and heading out barefoot with his head covered in shame. Ziba comes to him and he says. He says, here's some some food, I have some donkeys that are loaded with food for your journey. And then he, I think, whispers to David and he says, Mephibosheth, even Mephibosheth, the one that you rescued, the one that you've saved, the one that you've been kind to and brought into into your palace, even Mephibosheth has turned against you. He's longing for his own reign. He wants to be part of this new regime. He wants his own headship and part of it. And David turns to Ziba and says, All of the things that I've given to Mephibosheth, everything that is his, is, is now yours. And David then wanders out of Jerusalem, barefoot, head covered, in shame. Everyone is turned against him. He feels, or thinks, or sees. Including the ones that he could have traditionally, by cultural standards, could have killed, but instead rescued and brought into the palace. Even they're turned against him. But it even gets a little worse if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 16. In verse 5 it says, When King David came to Barim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shemai, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David, and at all the servants of King David, and at all the people, and all of the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And Shemai said as he cursed, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all of the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. David is followed by Shemai, cursing, throwing rocks, flinging dirt, the Bible tells us. And he comes out of Jerusalem to the edge of the Jordan River. And church historians and, and commentators say that that spot, when David is on the edge of the Jordan, and Absalom is coming to take over Jerusalem, and to sit in the palace on the king's throne, that spot That spot where David is at the edge of the river and all of those things have happened. The end of that day, Shemai has thrown dirt and rocks and curses at David and all of his people all day long and followed him. He comes to the edge of the Jordan and in that spot, he writes Psalm 3. Listen to it again. Oh Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. My glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. I'm not sure how you come in to the sanctuary this morning. You probably, though, were not chased out of your home by a rebellious son this morning you probably did not come barefoot with your head covered. You probably did not come with someone walking along beside you, fleeing dirt, throwing rocks, and shouting curses. But the feelings that David has as he sits there on the Jordan River and writes this psalm, those feelings you may be experiencing even this morning. And if you aren't experiencing them this morning, you can understand them, you can see them. As we read that psalm within its historical context, you can resonate with that. You can hear his heart as he shares his psalm. As he writes the psalm, there's three parts to it that I want to share with us this morning. There's three distinct parts in these verses that David has. The first is that David shows us that, that many times we have our eyes set on the situation around us. That's how David starts the psalm. And then the second section is about having our eyes set on the God who is above us. And then the third part is that we need to have our heart set on the salvation that is before us. The first part, having our eyes set on the situation around us, I think all of us will connect with and resonate with. He starts it by saying, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You can see it right here. David is is sitting on the Jordan River and he's reflecting on what has happened in this past day. And he's really, what he's doing is giving God a status report. He's saying, God, there are are many around me. the, The enemies have gathered There are people that have been walking along beside me, throwing rocks and flinging dirt and shouting curses. Do you see what's happening here, God? Absalom is moving into Jerusalem and is sitting on my throne. Do you see what's happening? Many are the foes that are rising up against me. We are wired. We are wired to give God a status report. We can see what's going on around us, and we all like to give God that status report. All of us have moments where we cry out to God and we say, God, do you see the foes are rising up against me? Do you see all these things that are happening to me? Do you see all these things that are coming down on me? Are you paying attention, God? Can you see all of these things that are hurting me and coming against me? I need help. God, my foes are rising and many are the enemies that are coming against me. Often throughout scripture, we see pictures of of people who do exactly this. You can see it in the Old Testament. You can see it in in several stories, one of which is the the story of the, the, the spies from Israel that head into the promised land. And they're supposed to check it out and come back and give the Israelites a report of what the promised land is going to be. And so 12 spies go in. When they come out, 10 of them say, there's, there's giants in the land. We're, we're just grasshoppers in their eyes. And two of the spies say, that's true. There are really big. But this is the land that God has promised for us. It will be hard, but we can do it. 10 of the spies, though, say the situation, it looks unbearable. It looks impossible. The situation around us is, is too hard. In the New Testament, there are several stories too. Peter, Peter has many instances where he doubts God. One where Jesus is walking on the water towards the boat and Peter's in the boat and he steps out and, and Jesus calls him and says, yes, you can come and walk on the water too and Jesus steps out and does, and, or Peter steps out and, and does. He walks on the water towards Jesus And then the story tells us that he looked around and saw the situation and saw that he was standing on the water where he shouldn't be standing and began to sink because his eyes were on the situation instead of on Jesus. Later after that, Peter has a time where he says, I will not deny you. And Jesus says, yes, you will. You will three times before tomorrow. Peter can't believe that that would be true, and yet is placed in situations that night, that very night, where he does, in fact, deny Jesus, because his eyes are on the situation. It's easy for us to say, my troubles are increasing, God. Are you watching this? Do you see what's happening to me? Here is the report of my current status my eyes are focused on the situation around me and I don't think you're seeing it, God. But it's not just that for David. David's struggles are not just the situation that's around him and and the foes that are coming, but it's also that there's an active accuser. Shemai is walking along beside him. Flinging rocks and flinging dirt and throwing accusations and is a constant and steady accuser. Sometimes, sometimes when we're in situations, we can we can handle what's happening in that situation. We can handle the circumstances of what's happening around us, but it's the thoughts that swirl in our head and it's the the accusations that we that we bring against ourselves, or maybe it's even the accusations that are brought by Satan. By the accuser, most of our self accusations and our our shameful thoughts that that pour over us, and most of those feelings they come they come from him. They come from Satan. Our shame and our condemnation comes from him. He shouts them at us. He throws rocks. He flings dust. When Paul talks about it in the New Testament, he says Satan shoots flaming arrows at us. And so Paul in the New Testament and David even here in the Psalm begin to tell us exactly how to respond. He says to take up a shield. In Psalm 3, David says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I woke up again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David said, it's easy for me to have my eyes set on the situation around me. But now I'm turning my eyes and I'm not focusing on the situation that's around me. But instead I'm turning my eyes to the God above. The flaming arrows are coming. The curses are coming. The rocks are coming. And so, and so I cry out to God and I say, Oh God, you are my shield. You are the one that will protect me. You are the one who will cover me. He says, you are my shield. You are my glory. The glory word here that's used is the idea of of the spoils of war. The treasure. You are my treasure. You are are the joy and satisfaction of winning. That's what you are. You are my glory. You are the win at the end of the battle. That's what you are. You are the one who guards me and shields me and covers me. And you are also the ultimate victory. And not only are you my shield and my glory, but you are the lifter of my head you are the one who takes away my shame you are the one who takes away my condemnation you are the one who takes the rag that's on my head as I march in shame out of Jerusalem barefoot you are the one who lifts my head and takes away my shame and my condemnation you are the shield you are my glory and you are the lifter of my head And then, after David turns his eyes and sets his eyes on God, he is finally ready to rest. I lay down and I slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Sleep, sleep shows our dependence on God. I think all of us can think of times, we know of times, where at the end of the day, We sit on our bed. We lay on our bed. And our mind is so active we can't go to sleep. And and it's easy for us to say, God, my foes are rising up against me. All of these things are spinning. All of these things. And we think we'll never be able to sleep. And yet, most times, our bodies finally give in. They cannot continue on. And we become dependent on God that we might rest. Scripture tells us over and over that God does not rest. He does not slumber. The Lord who watches over us will neither slumber nor sleep. He never sleeps. He's always watching the situation. And yet, our bodies wear out. Our bodies get tired. Our bodies find rest. And, usually, When we wake up in the morning, even after those nights where our minds are spinning out of control and we're thinking about our foes that are rising up against us, in the morning, everything may not be rosy, everything may not be perfect, but we have a new perspective. We have a fresh perspective. There's hope in the morning. When David turns his eyes to see God, he finds rest. He's able to sleep and he knows that God is We'll sustain him. David's focus here is not on his enemies, but is instead on God. And then, David says, "My eyes are set on the situation around me, my foes are rising, many are my enemies." And then he says, "But I need to turn my eyes to you, O Lord, you are the shield and my glory and the lifter of my head." And then he says, "Arise, O Lord." Save me, O oh my God. For you strike all of my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. You can see the military phrases as, as David works through this process. He knows there's a battle that could be coming. He knows that Absalom has come to take over the city. And he says, you are my shield, God. You are the spoils of war, God. You are the one who will lift my head. You are the one that takes away my shame and my condemnation. And then he cries out with his battle cry here, Arise, O Lord, and save me, O my God. Not because my mighty men are any stronger today than they were yesterday. Not because my army is any larger than it was yesterday. But because you Strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. You do the battle. You are the one that goes before me. My salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who is sovereign over all of this. It is all his and he will do as he pleases. David turns. David turns to God. And says, this is yours. This battle is yours, however it turns out. Whoever is on the throne in Israel, or in Jerusalem, whoever sits on that throne, this is yours. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's all his to do with as he pleases. I think David says, I don't want control over this. I don't have control over this. And so... I rest in you. You are the one who will save me. You are the one who will bring rescue. You are the one that I trust and rest in. David's heart is set on the salvation that comes from God, the salvation that comes before us. Matthew and the worship team are going to come and they're going to help us as we serve communion this morning. But I think as they do that, I just want to close just with a couple of, of questions for you. I think the obvious questions that come from Psalm 3 are where are your eyes set this morning? Where is your hope this morning? What is your Enemies and trials and hardships are you focused on today? Where are you saying, God, do you see this? My enemies are rising. They're coming against me. My foes are increasing. What accusations, even from the great accuser, are you battling against today? There's one picture that I I want to close with this morning. It comes from Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah is one of the minor prophets. It's in the back of the Old Testament there, just before the New Testament. And the prophet Zechariah has a picture in chapter 3 of really a a courtroom setting where God is there. He's the judge. He's the one on the, the bench of the courtroom. And then there's the accused In this picture, it's Joshua who really represents all of all of Israel, all of God's chosen people. Is standing there before God in filthy rags. It says, and then Satan is there. He is he is the accuser. He's the one that's going to to throw out the accusations against Israel, against Joshua, and Joshua has nowhere to stand. His clothes are are filthy. His rags are are torn. And there's nothing for him. There is no defense. And Joshua knows it. Israel knows it. Satan knows it. God knows it. But there's one other character in the picture. In Zechariah chapter 3, it's called the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, take off those filthy clothes, and they're removed. And then the angel says to Joshua, take these pure, perfect vestments and put them on. And they cover Joshua, and he's perfect. And God responds to Satan, the accuser, who's there to shout out condemnation and to throw Joshua under condemnation. And God turns to Satan and says, there's nothing here for you anymore. There's no condemnation now for this man who's in pure vestments. And in fact, the angel of the Lord, who we will find out in just a few pages if you keep turning in the New Testament, the angel of the Lord becomes flesh and man in the person of Jesus. The angel of the Lord says to Joshua, if you follow in my ways, I'll give you access to all of this. That's what we celebrate here at this table this morning. That there is an accuser that throws out shame and condemnation on you. There are foes that fight against you There are things that rise up that when you look at the situation, you think there's no way out. But God is a shield about us. He is our glory, and He is the lifter of our head. He has provided a way for us to fight shame and condemnation, and it's not on anything that we do on our own because salvation comes from God. And so God... His perfect plan sends his son to come to cover our filthy rags, to take away our filthy rags, and instead to cover us with perfect and pure vestments. When we trust in him, our shame and condemnation are gone. Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. foes that have risen up against us are gone, and there's nowhere to go except to God. He's our salvation. That's what we take here, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, the one who made it possible for us to say, God, you are my shield. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Let me pray for us this morning. God, we come before you right now knowing that there is nowhere else for us to go. We are like Joshua. We're in filthy rags. Everything that we can do on our own is worthless before you. But Jesus, he comes and covers us with his perfect robes of righteousness. He takes our place and covers our sin. And so now, God, when you see us, you see him. And his perfection and his righteousness covers our sin. He's given us pure vestments. And the condemnation and the accusations that come from Satan fall on deaf ears, God, because he has granted us access to become children of the king, heirs with Christ. And we celebrate that this morning, God. We're so grateful that salvation belongs to you that you have shielded us and given us glory and lifted our heads. So help us this morning as we celebrate these things together in communion. Turn our hearts towards you and let us rejoice in Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like those this morning that are going to come and help us to serve to go ahead and come forward. We're going to pass these, as Pastor Ron mentioned earlier. We would love to, for you, if you can live under the communion invitation, to partake with us. If you can't, feel free to welcome. We welcome you to pass these on as you sit there. The worship team is going to lead us, and we're going to sing together. We invite you to hold the element this morning and we will take it together.
1: Before the throne of God above I have a strong, a perfect plea A great high priest whose name is love Whoever lives and for me, my name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence Depart. No tongue can bid me thence. Deep
0: This represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken on the cross for us so that we might have the pure vestments that he earned, take and eat and rejoice. This represents the blood of Jesus. Again, we would invite you to take it and hold it and we will share it together.
1: Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. But would I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin? Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is count it free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. spotless righteousness the great unchained. My Savior and my God With Christ my Savior and my God My name is graven on His hands My name is written
0: on His
1: heart I know that while in heaven He stands No tongue can bid me No tongue can bid me thence depart.
0: without the shedding of blood there's no remission there's no forgiveness of sins and so God sent the angel of the Lord Jesus to come so that his blood might be shed so that we might have hope have forgiveness have reconciliation and rescue so that we might have no more condemnation but find salvation only in him take and drink and be grateful God, we celebrate together today there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus, that you have given us clothes of righteousness to cover our filthy rags of sin. And we have hope today. You've given us salvation, you've lifted our heads, and you are our glory. So go with us now and help us to rejoice in that. We pray this in your name. Amen.